Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The French writer Albert Camus is one of the most celebrated novelists of the last century. He's also a political reference point for figures like the current French president, Emmanuel Macron. Camus, who died in a car crash at the age of 44, has something of a rock star image. His most famous novel, The Stranger, even inspired a song by The Cure. Our guest today for a discussion of Camus' legacy is Oliver Gloag. Oliver teaches French and Francophone studies at the University of North Carolina, and he's the author of a recently published book, Albert Camus, A Very Short Introduction. How would you describe the position of Albert Camus in French cultural life today? It's hard to understate Camus' omnipresent in French cultural life from just a local bookstore. There'll be probably a a table full of books on Camus, or correspondence by Camus, because there's so many. Camus is also there in the in the theaters. I think they've uh, there was an opera recently, of course at the movies as well. And a friend told me that in Paris right now someone is reading Camus' diaries in a sort of one man show. Camus also, of course, is probably the most quoted French novelist, philosopher by politicians, and he's quoted by everyone from the Anarchist Federation to the far right, including very much the current president, Emmanuel Macron. There was even a movement in 2009 to put Camus in the Pantheon, to where where the great men of France reside. There are also comic books with uh, sort of prefaces. There are conspiracy theories. I mean, Camus is literally everywhere. Of course, also on magazine covers, a lot of pictures of him. And the magazines are from on the left, on the right. I mean, he's really a, a presence that's very hard to avoid in the French cultural landscape today. What set Camus apart in terms of background and his approach to writing? from the other French writers of his generation? Well, the first thing, of course, is that Camus was born in French Algeria, about 100 miles east of Algiers. And so that sets him apart. But what I think is perhaps, and this, so this is what everyone knows, but what perhaps is more interesting, what makes him a, a different writer and, and a very interesting one, is his social background. Most writers in France at that time and before were from bourgeois backgrounds. And Camus was from a very modest background. Uh, his mother ended up having to, to clean homes. Uh, his father, who, who died uh, a year after Camus was born, was going to manage a winery. And Camus grew up in the public school system. This is in the, the French sense of it, sort of, uh, you know, the schools that you do not pay for. And he... He had to work all the time. He was working every summer as a high school student, as a middle school student. He worked when he was at university. And so even his first published novel talks about, and the main hero is an office worker. So he's writing about from the perspective of someone from an underprivileged background. And that's a big, big 
big difference from the Sartre and the Malraux, even Queneau, all the big names, Gide, who were all around him at the time that Camus jumped in the scene. Do we have any evidence of what Camus' political outlook was as a young man in Algeria before the Second World War? Camus was was involved pretty early on in a movement for reform in, in French Algeria. So on the one hand, Camus you know, grows up in this French system of free education, and he grows up with these history books that glorify and glamorize French history and its emancipatory project, the project of the French Republic. And at the same time, there's this sort of state of apartheid that Camus is seeing live every day in Algeria. And he's trying to sort of to reconcile this. And there's a, there's a former governor of French Algeria, Violette, who proposes a bill, it's sort of a compromise bill, to give citizenship to about 5,000 Algerians. And by Algerians, I mean Arabs and Berbers, people who lived in Algeria before France invaded Algeria in 1830. And so this bill is sort of a very modest attempt at a sort of compromise, or if you want to be perhaps more more lucid about it, it's a way to create an elite that's going to be beholden to the French Republic, to the French colonial republic. And so Camus supports this bill. He wants it to, to pass into law, and he writes or co-writes a manifesto supporting the Bloom-Violet law. So at this stage... As a young man before the war, so there are a lot of different stages, but at his initial outlook is reform of the colonial system. Around that time in the 1930s, Camus joined the French Communist Party and then left two years later. He joined in 1935 and left in 1937. Do we have much of an idea of why he left, why he decided to join and then leave? And did he express any public views on topics that were controversial at the time, like the Moscow trials or like the Spanish Civil War? Well, so there are a lot of different interpretations, depending on which biography you read, who you listen to with respect to Camus' involvement in the Communist Party. It's unclear why he left or whether he was excluded. So what is certain is that in 1935, his mentor, who was his professor at university in the last year of high school, Jean Grenier, encourages him to join. They exchange letters, and when they're exchanging letters, it is clear that Camus is no communist. I think the, he says at one point he would never want to put capital between a human being and that person's enjoyment of life. Also talks about how class struggle is really illusory, according to young Camus, I think in 1935. So this still makes it more of a question. Why does he join the Communist Party? At that particular moment in the Algerian Communist Party and the Communist Party in France, there's a complete change of, of political line. So the party is moving away from Leninism, from the Leninist line that is advocating anti-colonialism as a crucial a line of attack. And here the Communist Party changes that, decides that it's going to be, let's try to make the overturn the social relations, but within the empire. So Camus joins at that time. People say he joined specifically to influence Arab sections of the Communist Party, but no one really says what he's supposed to do there. Essentially, what happens in 37 is that the Bloom-Violette bill does not pass into law. It's unanimously rejected. 
And that's when, in fact, Camus leaves. And that's also when a lot of Arab militants leave the Communist Party and start their own party. So I think that there's certainly an argument to be made for Camus working in the Communist Party and joining it. He was trying to prevent Arab and Berber militant groups from seceding and creating their own parties. And once that uh, looked like it was uh, a dead end, he had no reason to be there anymore. And then in a totally different perspective, certainly the Communist Party still back in the mid thirties was the place to be for an aspiring intellectual. And in fact, within the Communist Party, it was a sort of burgeoning cultural life. And there was a theater, it was called the Théâtre du Peuple, the People's Theater, which Camus was very much involved and continued to be involved after he left the party. It also offered him a way to interact with other intellectuals. He co-wrote a play at that time and he acted as well. So so there was a, another enticement. But Camus was, was never a communist the way we would understand it today. What attitude did Camus adopt in 1940 when the German occupation of France began? And how did he come to be involved in the resistance? In what capacity was he involved in the resistance as well? So we have to backtrack a little bit before 1940 to the build-up of the war. So at this stage, Camus has been rejected by the French state. He, he, he got his diplomas and the French state says because he had TB, they didn't want him to... Um, to work for the, the French national education. So he was left without, without a job, without any prospects. So that was, a, I mean, a real shock. I mean, imagine you get your PhD and for some reason you're not employable at all, although that's probably the case with many people at this stage. So Camus gets a break and works with Pascal Pia in a newspaper called Alger Républicain. And he's a reporter, but he also becomes quickly an editorialist. An editorialist. And, and in his editorials, he has a very pro-peace, anti-war stance. And it gets to the point where the French government censors the paper. And Camus is sort of considered a pacifist, no, no question about it. He doesn't want to be involved in the war at all. And he's, he's against the, the war. So in 1940, he goes, so his newspaper is closed down and he has to make a living. So he moves from Algeria to Paris and works for a newspaper called François or Paris Soir. And, you know, he sort of resents it. It's sort of a tabloid. And he doesn't get involved in, in the resistance until much, much later. He moves back to Oran when his newspaper folds. And then he moves back to France because of his TB. He, his doctor orders him to go to the mountains. And in the mountains of near Saint-Étienne, so the south of France, near Lyon, Saint-Étienne, his friends are in the resistance, Francis Sponge, again, Pascal Pia. But Camus only joins, it's unclear. I mean, you, you read books and biographies dating 20, 30 years ago. They'll say he joined in 1942. But he may have joined in December 43 or January 44. It's unclear exactly. How does he join? What does he do? He's not carrying documents or fighting with a machine gun. What he does is he writes articles that are, so they're they're really, they're not articles, they're, they're uh, letters, and they're called Letters to a German Friend. And these are letters where he basically explained France's reasons for joining the resistance and resisting 
against the Nazis. And it's really an explanation of why he took so long to join the resistance. He talks about how he wanted to avoid history, uh, but decided to join it. And he's very sort of resentful at the Germans for forcing him to join history. What else did he do? When he published The Myth of Sisyphus in 1942, uh, there was a part on Kafka. And of course, that was not going to pass censorship because all of literary, all literary publications in occupied France were under the control. There was a list, a list, uh, the list Otto, Otto Betz, who was a German official who oversaw all cultural life in France. And so all Jewish authors were banned. So Camus substituted his chapter on Kafka with a chapter on Dostoevsky. And so he then published that chapter um, in the spring of 44. And then he published maybe two or three letters to a German friend. He might have penned a couple of editorials in the resistance paper called Combat in the summer of 44. His play, Le Malentendu, was still uh, was one of, one of the last plays that was represented in occupied Paris, I think days before the liberation in August. So, so to sum up, he really was an editorialist. He wrote these plays. He worked for the newspaper. He assisted with the, uh, the creation of the newspaper Combat, which was the big clandestine paper. But on the later side, not at all what what one would believe from reading the representations made of his resistance involvement or the way it sort of evoked but never clearly described today in France even. How did Camus first come into contact with Jean-Paul Sartre? Well, so first they, they came in contact indirectly. Camus reviews Nausea, Sartre's big novel, and so he reviews it in a confidential publication in the 1930s. And he, he doesn't really like nausea too much. I mean, he likes it, but he doesn't like novels who are an explanation of philosophical principles. And he says he hopes that Sartre's new novel will be less philosophical and more of a pure novel. In 1942, Sartre reviews The Stranger and the Myth of Sisyphus. And what's sort of interesting is that he, he decides it's going to be an explanation. And he sort of explains and sometimes chastises Camus for not knowing about the philosophers that he quotes. And it's positive, but there's also a very professorial tone. And Camus writes about that that response and that review to Jean Grenier to say, well, the, the tone is pretty acid, but, but there are things he understands about my work that I didn't understand. So it's a sort of, there's ambivalence right from the start admiration, but also a fair amount of resentment, probably on both sides. Who knows? They actually meet during the German occupation in Paris in June of 1943, during the opening of Sartre's play, The Flies. And, you know, that's that's when they, they first meet and they, they really hit it off and they socialize a lot. What was the general attitude of the French left-wing intelligentsia, including figures like Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, towards the Communist Party in France and towards the Soviet Union after the war. How did Camus stand apart from them? Well, the Soviet Union after World War II in France had immense prestige. And they were the ones who defeated the Nazis on the ground. I mean, these are things that today in France people forget. Stalingrad was 
you know, so the bellwether, a lot of people entered the resistance after the defeat of the Nazis at Stalingrad. The Soviet Union was the, the liberator of Europe. That was the consensus. Of course, that also meant that the Communist Party, that was as well part of that victory, they were the first party of the resistance. They called themselves rightly the Le Parti des Fusillés, which meant the political party of, that had the most militants who were killed by the Nazis. And uh, the Communist Party was the first party in France in terms of pure numbers. I think they had a quarter of members of parliament, 26% of voters, and the prestige was immense. They had their own publications, not just L'Humanité, but Les Lettres Françaises. I mean, who was a member of the Communist Party back then? I mean, just about everyone you could think of, from Pablo Picasso, Henri Lefebvre, Ponge, Éluard, Aragon. So they were extremely, extremely powerful and prestigious. So the general attitude was of respect and, and, and awe. And certain Simone de Beauvoir, though not members of the party by any stretch of the imagination, I think Sartre starts to try and, and create a, a third wave. But they were, they certainly understood the importance and the influence that the Communist Party had with the working class. And Camus, at the very beginning of the post-war period, still won't criticize the Communist Party directly because it's still part of that big family of resistance. But that starts to stand apart very, very quickly. And in part with the wars uh, against colonialism, when Indochina, in the Indochinese fight against the French colonial system, there's a, a French member of the CGT, the Communist Party, who is imprisoned by the French state. And so Sartre gets very involved with that. And Camus does not. And so... Camus starts to, to break. There's also the notion that uh, the Soviet Union represents history with a big H and that they represent the progressive emancipation of people or the, the radical immediate one. They represent the resistance to Nazism. And so you're either for them or against them. And that's sort of an edict amongst, uh, amongst intellectuals who choose. And Camus refuses to choose. He doesn't want to be forced to to choose camps. And so that, that creates rifts right off the bat, for sure. Yeah, so he was he was never a communist and and he never he was never close to them. And you know, and then of course there are different periods for Sartre and for Simone de Beauvoir in terms of you know the, the French Communist Party. I mean they eventually get close to the Communist Party with you know I think around 1952. But what's important to note in all this is that Camus from the get-go was not a friend of the Communist Party, not a friend of the Soviet Union, would often warn against pro-independence movements because they would join the Soviet Union. So immediately he conceived of the Soviet Union as a menace, while Sartre would condemn the Soviet Union, but on, on very specific moments, like, you know, the, the invasion of Hungary in 52 or in Prague in September of 68. So Camus was always against the Soviet Union and Sartre did condemn them at very specific historical moments. We've been talking so far about the political activism and the explicit political stands that were adopted by Camus. But of course, his most celebrated work today is his fiction. What kind of political outlook do you think is discernible in his novels, in what he says and what he doesn't say? Well, so this has to do with Camus' identity as a settler, as a colon. They're called pieds noirs, black feet in, in, in French. And 
he is torn between sort of the generous ideals of the French Republic that were very concrete for him because he had this free education, because he had these teachers who, who lifted him up, who went to his home, tutored him, lifted him up out of his social class and helped him become you know, the winner of the Nobel Prize in 57. Also, because when his father died in World War I, he became a ward of the state, got some support, you know, scholarships. And so he was torn between that attachment to France and his attachment to Algeria and the knowledge that France was a colonial oppressive state. So at first he tries to fix it, you know, with his militancy with the Bloom Violette bill, and that fails. And then he also does some reporting about the difficult living conditions of people in Kabylia, a mountainous region of Algeria, and that also fails. So when he writes The Stranger, his first, you know, which is up until now his most famous novel, he he has sort of given up here. He, The characters in this story, the ones that don't speak, the ones that don't have first names or last names, are all Arabs or Berbers. And all the other characters... The, the, the white Europeans have speaking roles, exist as human beings. And so that's extremely so shocking to us today as readers in the 21st century. But at the time, it was a sort of a, a validation of the colonial order. He reproduces that reality, of the, uh, but without pointing it out. We're now going to hear a clip from a documentary on Camus, The Madness of Sincerity. In this clip, the actor Brian Cox reads an extract from The Stranger. The whole beach was reverberating in the sun and pressing against me from behind. The sun was beginning to burn my cheeks and I felt drops of sweat gathering in my eyebrows. It was the same sun as on the day of Mother's funeral and again it was my forehead that was hurting me most and all the veins were throbbing at once beneath the skin. I took a step, just one step forward, and this time, without sitting up, the Arab drew his knife and held it out towards me in the sun. It was like a long flashing sword lunging at my forehead. My whole being went tense and I tightened my grip on the gun. The trigger gave and it was there that it all started. I realized that I destroyed the balance of the day, the perfect silence of this beach, where I'd been happy. And I fired four more times at the lifeless body, and the bullets sank in without leaving a mark. So in a way you could see that, in, in a sense, as sort of a denial of the colonial reality a denial of Arab Berbers as human beings in a way. And, you know, you have 19th century authors like Maupassant in French literature who, who talk about these issues. And here Camus is sort of erasing them. And, you know, that took a while for people to look at that novel from that perspective, to say, wait a second, this novel is about this. In a way, the novel challenges the mores of Catholicism, of social climbing, but it also leaves completely unchallenged colonialism and, and its inequities. And so that, that came out in 1970. Connor Cruz O'Brien writes, writes a small essay on Albert Camus, pointing this out. 
Edward Said in the 70s. Before that, there was Nora and Crea who wrote early on a critique of Camus when, when, uh, and of The Stranger. But overall, really, we had to wait till Said for this critique to emerge. And still to this day, it, it has no traction in France. With The Plague in 1947, which is a novel that's very fashionable now because, of course, of COVID-19, it's widely interpreted, and he has a quotation by Daniel Defoe, as a sort of allegory of the German occupation. So there's this little village in Oran, a port city in Algeria, and there's The Plague, and it's an elite of enlightened men who fight The Plague, doctors, poets, and they all do their best against this unknown adversity. And today we, we look at it. I mean, there are editorials everywhere that pop up every other month on the plague and how it's about sort of human solidarity against oppression, against adversity. I think that this is, there's a slow coming to terms of Camus' identity as a settler through his fiction, through his body of works. And the plague is the midpoint. The plague, you could read it as the part where if the stranger is the denial, the plague is, is the repressed coming to the surface. We're going to hear another clip of Brian Cox reading from Camus, this time from the plague. His wife was coming by the first train. If only he could put the clock back and be once more the man who at the outbreak of the epidemic had only one thought and one desire to escape and return to the woman he loved. But that, he knew, was out of the question now. He had changed too greatly. The plague had forced on him a detachment, which, try as he might, he couldn't think away, and which, like a formless fear, haunted his mind. With his arms locked around her, he let his tears flow freely, aware only that they would prevent his making sure if the face buried in the hollow of his shoulder was the face of which he had dreamed so often, or a stranger's face. For the moment, he wished to behave like all those others around him who believed or pretended to believe that plague can come and go without changing anything in men's hearts. And you can think of the plague as, in fact, the fear and the fear of the emergence of the revolts of Arabs and Berbers resurfacing and that fear of the, the movement of history. So from 1830 to 1947, there have been revolts, resistance. I mean, from 1830 to 1942, France suffered huge military defeats at the hands of Abdelkader. There were Berber revolts in 1870. There were sporadic revolts all over the territory. And so there was that sort of ongoing fear of the people, the vast majority of the people, 90% of human beings living in that land were Algerians, were not French settlers. And I think for someone like Camus, who was educated in the French Republic's educational system, that's all about the mass of French peasants and bourgeois rising against aristocracy. I mean, one way of reading French history from the Middle Ages onwards is this slow march towards the French Revolution. 
And so it's one level, it has to be that there is a notion that there is a slow march towards Algerian independence. And that the plague is that. It is that fear, that fear of this movement and this almost the fact that the French colony is is sentenced to death, as it were. It's the finitude. And that eventually the resistance to French oppression will come to. And, and if you read the end of the play, the last page, and I'm sort of scrambling to see what I've done with my copy of it, which I won't find, but it's the very end. And it's a celebration because the plague is over. But the doctor, the hero of the plague, says, well, it can lie dormant for years. And potentially one day it would rise up its rats again and send the population to die. And so there's this idea that eventually he's sort of forecasting what is happening. Now, this is not an interpretation that that Camus would, would approve of, but you can certainly read the novel that way. And that is the, the, the secret fear, the secret fear of these settlers. And then, of course, the third step, uh, and another way to read Camus' last unpublished novel, which is called The First Man, is a coming to terms and a cry, a coming to terms of Camus' identity as a settler. And here, this is an autobiographical novel, thinly disguised, and just the title. This is a settler born in Algeria, and he calls himself the first man. So right there, we have the denial of anyone who came before him. Occasionally, Camus, uh, because we get the draft form of the manuscript, called the, the, the hero Adam. And it is a defense of the settlers. And he calls the settlers indigenous people of Algeria. And so it's very hard not to read the first man, his last novel, as the final acceptance of his his identity of a settler. And, and in the end, it's a confession. So you can see sort of a, a progression in his works. And what's interesting, of course, is that the first man wasn't published after he died. They had to wait, and it was sort of a, a, a specific decision, but maybe we'll talk about that later. We're now going to hear a clip from a documentary on Algeria's War of Independence. Two leaders of the Algerian nationalist movement, a French officer and an American journalist, describe the impact of the Second World War and the massacre at Satif. We fought the war for France, including me, by the way. Uh, We were fighting the war for liberation of Europe. And we did not understand why we shouldn't be liberated after we helped to liberate Europe, on one hand, especially France. They wanted some autonomy, some freedom. So there was the first revolt in Setif, in Algeria, in 1945. And there was a bloodbath. There was an enormous massacre. There was an incident which is complicated to recount, but it involved uh, a Muslim being killed by a French policeman, and then the Muslims turned upon the French and killed a few of those in revenge. And then in revenge for that, the French bombarded Satif with a cruiser which was sitting out in the Gulf of Bougie. They got Italian prisoners of war to help in what was in effect a pogrom 
of Algerians, and they slaughtered people right and left. It was hideous. It was a really ugly thing. The repression of 1945 was landmark in the birth of a revolutionary movement. What was Camus' attitude towards the colonial wars waged by France after 1945? What views did he express in public and in private? They were always extremely ambiguous publicly. On V-Day, 8th of May, 1945, in the towns of Sétif and Guelma, the Algerian population of these towns uh, decides to demonstrate in favour of, amongst other things, Algerian independence. And these demonstrators were largely composed of Algerian veterans of World War II. They've just come back from the front. They participated in the, some of the, the few and major victories of the French army on the Italian front. And they were promised by de Gaulle in early in 44 that they would get independence if they fought alongside the French army. And that's also sort of one of the central paradox, well, not just a major inequity of the colonial system, which made Algerians fight for the French army, but they couldn't vote. So these demonstrations, which are start in May of 45, and the French police tries to tear down their flags, uh, their banners, and their riot ensues. Some police officers die, and the response of the French state is about two weeks of bombing, airplanes, ships, battleships. And so the death toll is in the thousands. Tens of thousands of Algerians are killed. The French press doesn't talk about it. And Camus, as luck would have it, is writing a series of articles on Algeria at the time. And he he describes the the police and the military as sort of reasonable and describes their actions as force. And on the other hand, when he describes the actions of the demonstrators who killed maybe, there were maybe maybe 100 casualties on the side of the settlers and the police, he calls those massacres. So already at that stage, you realize that he is a supporter of colonial justice, but he tries to sort of say, well, we want peace and we don't support either side, but just the way he described one violence as force and one counterviolence in the counterviolence of the colonized as violence or massacres, you already know where he stands. And he writes a series of articles called Neither Victims Nor Executioners. Two years later, the French state kills tens of thousands of Malgache, the people of Madagascar, who are rising up against French colonialism. There again, Camus um, is has a sort of biased perspective, and he he equates the wholesale massacres of of Malgache, you know, in the tens of thousands, with the killing of maybe half a dozen settlers, and and so that's already very problematic publicly, his public writing. Privately, I, I would say it's even more problematic. So, for example, in 1954, when the Indo-Chinese finally win their independence. And there's this famous battle at Dien Bien Phu, where the French are, it's sort of the Custer's last stand. And uh, the, the French army is just completely defeated. And Camus describes that in his diary. He obviously, it was private at the time. He feels towards the French defeat in Dien Bien Phu the way he felt towards the French defeat at the hands of the Nazis. So there's an implicit comparison of the Nazis 
and the Indo-Chinese, which is sort of at the complete opposite of what others like Sartre would say and so on and so forth. So very, very much on the colonialist side. What was the nature of his celebrated falling out with Sartre? Uh, What were the main points of contention between them? Well, it comes out officially, there were were rifts before, as, as you know, even after 1945, there were disputes amongst them with respect to the position, this was with a, 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 a member of Les Temps Modernes, uh, Maurice Parlon-Ponty, who was a philosopher and who wrote a book very much supportive of the Soviet Union. And Camus was had a big dispute with him. And Merleau-Ponty said to him, you know, you either have to choose to be on the side of history with the Soviet Union or not. And that was a big break uh, between Camus and Merleau-Ponty, but also with Sartre. But the break really happens when Camus writes The Rebel. So he writes The Rebel in 1951, or he writes it before, but it comes out in 1951, and people in Sartre's publication, Les Temps Modernes, are sort of embarrassed because they don't know what to do. They, they have to review it. And uh, The Rebel is, it, it's about revolt, right? So just to, to backtrack a little bit, Camus' um, main sort of theory in the 40s, in the early 40s, is his theory of the absurd, that the world is absurd and there's no meaning at all. And that's the first absurd. There are two absurds for Camus. And the second one is the realization of this absurdity. And then you have to live as an absurd man. And I, I'm, I say man because there is there are no absurd women in Camus' universe. Women are not really present as intellectual beings for the most part. So... This is a sort of very sort of nihilistic perspective. And Camus, with the advent of World War II and Nazism, changes that perspective, modifies it. He also modifies a play that he was writing at the time. He was writing Caligula, and the the play changes. And he injects this notion of revolt, which tries to, to inject a dose of morality in the absurd. But the, the rebel really speaks to what revolt shouldn't be, according to Camus. And it shouldn't be revolution. And revolt should be spontaneous. It shouldn't be elaborated. It shouldn't be a system. It shouldn't be programmatic. So you know where I'm going here. Revolt cannot be communism. It's essentially a tract against communism. But it's also a tract against anti-colonial movements, because one of the first principles, as it were, of revolt, according to Camus, is that it can't take place in non-European countries. So it's not just a text in which he equates Nazism with the Soviet Union, which was extremely shocking at the time. And he also circumscribes the right to rebel and revolt to European countries. So that created, so Francis Janson, who who was a, also a philosopher and who wrote for Les Temps Modernes, who later became an ally of the, the nationalists and worked for them during the Algerian War of Liberation, writes the review. And the review is scathing and points out the fact that Camus does not criticize, focuses on the, the, the crimes and excesses of the Soviet Union, the camps, the invasion of Hungary, but doesn't say anything about what France is doing in Algeria, in Madagascar, in Senegal, in all its colonies. And Camus responds directly to Sartre 
in les temps modernes and attacks Sartre and completely ignores Janson and gives an ultimatum to Janson and to Sartre and says, you know, I'm not going to respond and I'm not going to consider anything you say unless you hereby relinquish and completely forever condemn the Soviet Union. And, and you know, if you do that, then maybe I'll look at, at other issues. And so it's sort of a non-starter. So Sartre responds in a sort of scathing letter that is made public. So this is a complete public break. And he laments the fact that he that he is dragged into this and that now everyone's they're going to sort of consider him a laughing stock for airing uh, this in public. And so he takes Camus to, to task. And so the old critiques, you know, the old comments about Camus' lack of, of intellectual rigor resurface, things that he had written in 1942, and proceeds to demonstrate that Camus doesn't really read primary sources. And so it becomes sort of almost, you know, humiliating. And then he talks about Camus' shortcomings with respect to the crimes of, of colonialism, France's involvement uh, thereon. And, um, you know, the, there is no return from, from that. He also points out that, he, of course, he has condemned uh, the Soviet Union um, many times. And the aftermath of this is that everyone, whether or not they agree with Camus' South's position, agrees on one thing, is that Camus is thoroughly humiliated and that Sartre and Janson have the upper hand. Ultimately, what was this about? I think it was about anti-Marxism and it was about colonialism. And Camus tried to make it about humanism. But this was sort of the unmasking of Camus. This was, this was a, a, at the time, was perceived as ultimate loss of credibility. Very, very few people came to the defense of Camus. I think he sort of moved away from, from Paris for, for a long while. He wrote a short story about it and then later wrote a whole novel about that break. At that time, when they, they had that break and they didn't speak since, you know, and then, and then of course, Camus died. They never attack one another more so than, than, than after that break. So in every Camus collection of short stories, in his each one of his novels after this, there are attacks on Sartre. And Sartre in conferences will take Camus to task even after his death. So the paradox is they have this break, but after this break, they sort of become inseparable. And that break continues to live on today in modified forms in today's political and cultural environment in France. That was Ennio Marconi's theme tune from the Battle of Algiers. We're now going to hear another clip from the documentary mentioned earlier on the Algerian War. The journalist Henri Alleg describes his experience of torture at the hands of the French army. I was at the time uh, the editor of a newspaper called Algérie Républicaine. And this uh, daily was the only one in Algeria at the time to uh, defend the right of Algerian people for independence. At the same time, although the newspaper was not a communist newspaper, I was a member of the Algerian Communist Party. And so when the war broke out after a few months, I had to go underground. Then I was arrested and the paratroopers 
and the officers of the paratroopers wanted me to give them information about my friends and about the organization. And as I refused to do it, I was tortured by them. This happened in the year 57, 1957, in June 57. Um, the methods they used were, are now, I think, known, very, I would not say popular, but they are widely known, electricity, water, and uh, also a pentotal, you know, the injection of, uh, in French call it serum de vérité, to make people speak against their will. Uh, this was uh, uh, done for about uh, 48 hours, and then they tried again. But uh, I must say that I was not the only one, and this was really um, a sort of, of law, unwritten law, for all people who were arrested at that, at that time. They were submitted to torture. It was not the case of one or two or even a dozen. Or, it was the case of thousands and thousands of people. How did Camus respond to the outbreak of war in Algeria? Well, for us, we have this vision. Okay, starts November 54. And, and we define it because it's the call-up. I think French soldiers are, are coming in greater numbers in Algeria. But at the time, it was one incident in a sea of incidents. I mean, even though there was a statement by the FLN, no one sort of realized that this was the beginning of a war. So Camus doesn't really say much or do anything. He's silent. He's, I think, in November, he's on vacation in Rome. Eventually, it becomes obvious that something is, is, is going on. And he's urged by, by a number of people to, to take a stand. And he, he's largely silent on the issue until, I think, until early 55. And again, he tries to, and his, his, his position will, will change over time, but he tries to say basically that uh, France needs to be more just, more fair, but there cannot be an Algerian independence. That's ultimately his position. That position will become gradually more clear as the war progresses. In I think in 1956, he decides to call for a civil truce. So he wants all parties, meaning the FLN, the MNA, and the French army, to call for a truce on civilian victims. And again, here that's problematic too. You know, you have a war that's been going on against Algerians since 1830. And um, there's sort of an equation between the victims of the FLN and the victims of the French state, the French army throughout that long history. And he writes that appeal and he goes to give a talk for this compromise in Algiers in, I think, January of 1955. The settlers don't want to hear it. They want complete support of French Algeria. They don't want any compromise. In fact, I think one could say that at this stage, in certain segments of the settler population, they want to break even from France. They were enamored with the model of the United States of America. This is, this is a, a hope for settler colonialism. And eventually there will be a military coup, uh, an attempted coup in France. So Camus goes there and he's booed and he's, he's heckled by the settlers, by his people, who say, you know, death to Camus. And the organizers 
of the meeting, unbeknownst to Camus, are all members of the FLN. So Camus sort of played here. So it makes the settlers look you know, like the intransigent people that they were. And Camus goes back to Paris, completely devastated, refusing to speak publicly about this. He does reissue some articles he wrote about Algeria and the living conditions of people, the, the Berbers and the Kabyles. He had written a series of articles sort of asking for humanitarian gestures from the French state. He wrote these articles in the 30s. He has them republished to show his bona fides on the issue. He, he selects the articles. There are some that are so paternalistic he doesn't reproduce. So he does that. But really, ultimately, he also tries to influence ministers, uh, the keeper of the seals, the Garde des Sceaux, which, who was François Mitterrand at the time, to commute the death penalties of some militants from the FLN so that they're not sentenced. So he tries to, to really work compromise. But ultimately, some of his last public statements on Algeria are that he's against the independence of Algeria, that there has to be a compromise. And so he'll say things like, the time of colonialism is over, but he wants Algeria to remain French. His project, so he came up with a project. So there's a lot of stuff for someone who's, who, who ostensibly said he wanted to be silent. But one of his projects, his proposal, was for Algeria to have its own flag, be independent, except when it came to matters of the military and to economical matters. So everything else they could do, which, of course, is eerily similar to what's going on in most of Western Africa today, where there are these nominal independences, but at the same time, the currency, the ECO now, before the France CFI, is controlled by, by the French National Bank, and the French military bases are all over the place, which is something that Fanon warned against. So even Camus' compromises still don't change the fact that France will control the riches of these countries. Uh, needless to say, these compromises didn't fly with anyone either. Where did Camus' reputation stand at the time of his death and over the decade that followed? And what does the re-evaluation of Camus since then tell us about the way that French politics and French intellectual life have shifted? Well, so Camus dies on January 1960. And the War of Algerian Independence, you know, it's from 54 to 62, so it's not over. That's important to note. But people in France at that stage were, were in the metropolitan France were extremely, you know, extremely tired of the whole of, of war. And Camus was, I think, identified with a pro-colonialist stance. Also, he still suffered from the backlash of the break with Sartre, who was at the height of his power and influence at that time. There were, you know, manifestos against the war in Algeria, uh, against torture practiced by the French state in, in Algeria. Those were headed by Sartre. Camus remained silent there. So when he died, although, of course, there was a huge outcry and an emotional outpouring, I mean, he was, he had this sort of a celebrity status. You know, in the, in the car where he had that accident, they, um, they found this manuscript. I think it was Malraux who said, well, you know, bring it to Gallimard. And so the, the manuscript was the first man. And his wife, some close friends, read the manuscript and decide together that this is not the time 
to publish a defense of the Pianois, the French settlers in Algeria. Because at the end of the Algerian war, and once the Algerian war was over and Algeria was independent, no one wanted to hear about it in France. It was off the news completely. And there was a sense that the doxa at the time was anti-colonialist. Certainly there was no nostalgia for colonialism at this stage. And no one wanted to, they didn't think it was a good bet. Rightly so, I'm sure, to publish The First Man. So, and also, of course, this is the era, you know, we'll, we'll get to, to 1968. There's, there's a tremendous effervescence for revolution in France. Just about every other intellectual is in the Communist Party, something Camus would have, you know, did 35, 37 for very specific reasons, wasn't a part of this. So this is not a Camusian time. The reevaluation of Camus, I think, starts with this sort of, you know, 1968 was a failed revolution, but it had a real counter-revolution. And with the realization that the Communist Party was going to stand against the revolution in 68, a lot of intellectuals left the Communist Party. Some joined Maoist parties, but a lot just completely turned around and became right, right wing. People who were published by Les Temps Modernes, working with South. And there was a huge shift in French intellectual life away from from radical social change and towards an embrace of neoliberalism. And the fil conducteur, the the directing line, the the, the force behind this was anti-communism. And so we have a series of anti-communist intellectuals that come to the fore that are supported by French TV that get that have more and more clout people like Glucksmann and uh, you know BH Bernard-Henri Lévy and it's, it's sort of odd to call them intellectuals but they certainly are on TV and are represented as such this starts to create an ecosystem where Camus can can come back the moment where really people come out and say Camus was right is starting 89 with what people call the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then when the Soviet Union sort of collapses in 91, people go back and say, look, all this anti-communist stuff that can be wrote about in The Rebel. He was right. And so he becomes sort of the favorite prophet of French neoliberal intellectuals, what South would call inauthentic intellectuals. And so there's a big revival in right-wing circles of Camus. At this stage, it's not gained the popularity that it will later. And in 1994, I believe, the publishers Gallimard decide to cautiously publish The First Man. Remember the, the manuscript that was found there at the accident scene. But they publish it a limited run, you know, 5,000 copies, no paperback, not the standard edition, but just the part of the Cahier Albert Camus. And that comes out. And that's a huge hit. And they have to republish it, and everyone loves it. And suddenly, the Camus mania starts at that moment, because Camus gives this sort of idealized version of the colonial history. He talks about these settlers who are victims in Camus' eye, the winemakers, the vignerons, who decide to pull their vines because they don't want Arabs to use them, which is, you know, an irony, of course, because those vines were planted after France pulled out olive trees so that they could plant vines in a Muslim land. And so there is this complete retelling of history by Camus in The First Man, this, this, this fiction that Europeans are the first men in Africa, 
in Algeria here specifically, and it's a huge hit. And the French intelligentsia, the French public, loves this idea of seeing colonialism as a happy story with a hero, with Camus. And from then on, you know, there are books that come one after another. It becomes the a huge amount of the, um, I was going to say, the, the revenue stream of French publishing houses, including the number one most prestigious one called Gallimard. And they, I think I mentioned it at the beginning. So they're comic books, uh, many, many biographies, sometimes published by the same publishing house. They'll have two, three biographies of Camus, uh, explanations of his texts, photo albums. He was always having his picture taken and so on and so forth. Documentaries on TVs, interviews with his daughter, and on and on it goes. So I think that it really happened after the fall of the Soviet Union and then this sort of reconsideration of French colonialism through his first novel. So intellectual life in France today, it's this glamorization of a universalism that is state-sponsored, that wants to erase the realities of colonialism, and Camus is the perfect stand-in for this. You can read all of his fiction and think, well, French colonialism wasn't so bad. There were good people there. And so he is really the author of today's neo-colonial world that wants to be able to look at its colonial past with a sense of nostalgia. And it's sort of a, a recreation. It's a caricature of colonialism, right? It's a pastiche because there are none of the crimes there. So, so Camus is sort of a godsend for all sorts of politicians, not just publishers and academics who don't want to insert history in literature. Many thanks to Oliver Glowag for that introduction to Camus' legacy. If you want to know more, I'd recommend Oliver's book and his recent essay for Jacobin, The Colonial Contradictions of Albert Camus. 